Blockchain. Blockchain. Blockchain is a new network. Blockchain-based Bitcoin blockchain. The underlying blockchains. Blockchain technology. Yes, blockchain. For the past few years, this keyword has been increasingly used in the world of technology. It's a buzzword that people seem to use when they either really know what they're talking about or at least want to appear like they know what they're talking about. When people discuss blockchain, they're likely talking about subjects like Bitcoin, shared databases, Ethereum, Web 3.0, the decentralization of money, and more. So with all this talk surrounding it, is blockchain important? A growing number of policy experts and technology researchers believe that the short answer to that question is yes, it does matter. Jonathan Hohenshield, director for Alex Communication and Technology Task Force, says that one of the reasons for that is blockchain is likely here to stay. Blockchain is the future. Blockchain, the underlying technology, is the future. So what exactly is it? What is blockchain? Jan Pritzker is the author of Inventing Bitcoin, the co-founder and CTO of Swan Bitcoin, and a blockchain educator. He describes blockchain most fundamentally as a ledger, like a list of transactions. That's where the term blockchain comes from. Each block is a transaction, an entry on that list. And the chain is just a history of those transactions. Blockchain, literally, it's, it's a chain of blocks, and a block is just a bunch of transactional data. And the chain shows you how that transaction you know, flowed through time. To understand how it works, Jan says, we have to observe how it's used in Bitcoin, the technology that he calls the progenitor of blockchain. Remember, blockchain is a record of transactions. So a Bitcoin blockchain would help keep track of who owns how much Bitcoin. Um, we have to look at Bitcoin because that was the, really the progenitor of this idea. Uh, and the idea is that you have some type of asset, a digital asset, which is in this case Bitcoin, and it is on a ledger, right? So in a traditional banking environment and traditional financial environment, there is also a ledger, right? We are all familiar with uh, traditional money, um, like digital dollars that exist in our bank account today. Most money out in our ecosystem is not physical. It's not physical cash. Your bank doesn't actually have a large vault full of cash. It has just digital entries in a ledger. So if blockchain is just a list of transactions, what is it that makes it special? What's the difference between blockchain and the bank account statement that you get every month? That question is at the heart of understanding blockchain. Unlike other ways of keeping a list, blockchain is decentralized. Um, the difference with Bitcoin is that the ledger has been decentralized, meaning there's no central control of the ledger. It's actually um, permissionless. Anybody can participate and anybody can transact and anybody can become a, effectively a bank of their own in the sense that they can maintain that ledger for themselves. But what does it mean when we describe blockchain as decentralized? How can there be a way of keeping track of value without having anyone in charge? And what kind of impact could a system like that have on existing institutions? My name is Leo Braseno. You're listening to Across the States, 
the premier state policy podcast produced by the American Legislative Exchange Council. So if blockchain is a ledger, if it's a list of transactions, who keeps that list? This is the hard part about understanding blockchain. The answer is that it's not any one person or organization. There is no headquarters, there is no bank, there are no officials. Instead, blockchain structures require individuals all over the world to independently keep track of the record. Each one of these individuals keeps a version of the ledger. These individuals are called miners. Bitcoin is secured by a network of, of people, companies, computers called miners. Um, these are special hardware devices and, and they perform the function of essentially maintaining the security of that, of that ledger where all the transactions are written. Anyone can become a miner. So this network is all over the place and doesn't require anything to participate. You just have to plug in a computer. You have to have some cheap electricity. Um, so people all over the place are doing it. Anywhere from people in garages to multi-million dollar public companies, multi-billion dollar public companies actually. For their services, these blockchain keepers get something in return, generally in the context of the digital asset they're logging. Bitcoin miners get Bitcoin, Ethereum miners get Ethereum, and so on. You might be wondering where these assets come from, or why they have to be mined in the first place. Well, that's a different conversation that depends on the kind of digital asset we're talking about. They all have similar systems, but the creation of Bitcoin, or cryptocurrency, is another topic altogether that, although related to blockchain, isn't needed to understand blockchain itself. For now, it's just important to note that blockchain can keep track of digital assets that have value. Okay, let's go back and recap. So far, there's three ideas that we need to understand. One, blockchain is a way of keeping track of value. It's basically a list of transactions. Two, but unlike a ledger, blockchain has hundreds of thousands of people that keep it all at once. These people are called miners. And three, each one of these miners has a copy of the ledger and they maintain it independently. This leaves us with some questions. Wouldn't there be hundreds of different versions of this blockchain? And what's keeping miners from altering the ledger to their own advantage? Blockchain is a little bit like the game of tag. Everyone knows the rules for tag. If you get touched by the person who's it, well, now you have to go and try to tag someone else. But there's no official version of tag. There's no book or law or department of games that makes tag what it is. Even so, just about every child you run into on a playground will know how to play it. And there's a widespread understanding and agreement of how the rules work. Blockchain functions in a similar way. It depends on a common agreement of rules, very, very complex rules, that makes blockchain what it is. 
and sets the terms for how the ledger is kept. We won't go into the specifics, but the key idea here is that there's no one governing body that enforces those rules. But despite that, everyone keeping the blockchain abides by the same guiding principles. And if they don't, they become incompatible with the rest of the blockchain and their record of the ledger won't be valid. The blockchain network uses this decentralized system as a way to protect its contents. Jonathan Hohenschild explains that this is exactly how new transactions, new entries are secured. The primary function is to validate all of the previous transactions. Person one transferred to person two. Person two transferred to person three and how much. That's a new transaction. It's a new transaction that has to be added to the blockchain uh, so that the records are in lockstep, so that the records are equal. So you have, again, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of computers agreeing that, yes, this is what happened. This is what transpired. It's in this way that blockchain networks can catch errors and incorrect entries. Jonathan explains that this system of group confirmation is what gives blockchain records unity across the board and security. If there is an error, it is caught. If someone tries to manipulate it, it is caught. The other computers flag it, or where I won't say flag it. When you start looking at it, you go, wait a minute, there's a problem here. We have three computers that say this transaction happened, yet the other hundreds of thousands, millions of computers say it never did. And that's where you end up with the confidence in the blockchain. While it's still not impossible, it is very, very, very difficult to manipulate. There's a lot of different technologies that use blockchain. There's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, and the list goes on. But they all use the same kind of decentralized concept, generally speaking. I know that's a lot of information to process in just a few minutes. If you need to recap or would like to see a visual representation of what we've covered so far, you can use our legislator's brief that we provided for you in the description of this episode. This one-page document gives a brief overview of the ideas we've looked at. There's a number of different implications that the decentralized nature of blockchain has for the technologies that use it. They're very easy to become a part of. They can be accessed virtually anywhere. But one other element that makes blockchain particularly worthy of note is that they're very difficult to contain or regulate. Last year, China tried to do just that. Banks to, quote, strictly implement rules that restrict them from providing crypto-related services. This is Chinese officials are ordering a shutdown of crypto mining in several regions of the country, effectively closing more than 90 percent of its Bitcoin mining capacity. Joining me right now is the chairman of the Chamber of... What was your reaction when you found out that China was going to try to eliminate the involvement of its population in cryptocurrencies? Extremely bullish. Extremely bullish. I mean, I mean, it's bad for the Chinese people. I'm sad for them, but I, I love it when countries fight Bitcoin. Prior to the China ban, 
uh, it was said that about half of the mining capacity in the world was actually in China. Uh, part of the reason was they had a lot of cheap power. They had a lot of uh, unused power plants. They had a lot of hydropower in remote regions that nobody was using. And so the biggest sort of, you know, what we call FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt prior to the China ban was what if China was to take over all their miners and, you know, nationalize their miners and tell them to stop mining or do whatever. Well, they did that. They told them to all stop mining. And overnight, these miners left. They left China. They went to other places. This happened in the scope of about two weeks, literally. They packed up shop and they got out of there. And Bitcoin was completely unaffected. Um, and so for me, that was the first demonstration of what happens when one of the world's, arguably one of the biggest you know, superpowers of the world, with the most uh, authoritarian type of government that could do anything they wanted, really. They could jail people, kill people, nobody would know. They did this. They tried to shut down the thing, and it was fine. Nothing happened. Price went up, right? So, um... Because of how accessible they are, blockchain technologies are really difficult to shut off. The only real way to do it would be to somehow convince or force all of the users to stop participating in the blockchain network. Jan says this would be like trying to shut off the internet. It's something similar to the internet, right? You, you, the internet, when you connect your computer, you connect to other computers all over the world. And that's what the internet is. It's just a connection of computers that talk to each other. Uh, with Bitcoin, it's a connection, it's a network of computers that talk to each other the type of data they transmit is kind of special. Whereas with the internet, for example, on the web, we're transmitting text and, and images and stuff like that. Uh, with Bitcoin, we're also transmitting text, uh, except for that text is an indication of some type of transactional data. I grew up with the internet. And when I saw the internet, you know, in 1993, I was a kid, I came online and I saw for the first time a chat room where people were free to say whatever they wanted to each other. And I immediately said, this is the future. There is no turning back from this. It's already, the cat is out of the bag, right? Now, you can go and you can shut down some parts of it, right? We have countries with authoritarian, you know, uh, tendencies that go and shut down the internet. There's a good example, you know, Russia. Right now we're at war. Russia's going down and shutting down Facebook, right? You've got countries that just pull the plug on their entire infrastructure, try to take themselves offline, prevent their citizens from ask, accessing free information. But the information is there. The information is out there, and that access is really, really hard to revoke, especially now that we have satellites, right? The way that blockchain is built could be a threat to totalitarian regimes like China. They wouldn't be able to stop, shut off, or control any of the assets being recorded on the blockchain. For Yon, the idea of a decentralized system of keeping track of value is an idea that hits close to home. His family once left a country that was dominated by the most totalitarian state in recent history, the Soviet Union. It actually, for me, started to make sense when I uh, talked to my parents, because we are from the former Soviet Union. Uh, and if you want to talk about a place that, you know, had a regulated economy, that's what a regulated economy looks like. At the end of the day, if you push it to this extreme, you have price controls, you have capital controls, um, completely, completely no freedom uh, of individual action. And so uh, when we left the Soviet Union in 89, the government allowed us to exchange $100 per person um, from rubles to dollars at the government exchange rate, which was completely fake and completely divorced from the real street value of the ruble. So essentially, um, I didn't know this until I was, you know, in my mid-30s and talking to my parents while, while learning about Bitcoin. 
and I asked them what happened to our money and they explained this to me. And I said, well, this is literally the problem that Bitcoin solves. It actually allows people for the first time ever in, you know, for the first time in the history of humanity to be able to port their wealth from one jurisdiction to another without any issues. Put a password in your head and walk out of the country completely naked, right? Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on regimes that want to do these kinds of things and price control and capital control and, and, and do this kind of stuff to their, to their population because people can now go on the internet and earn, you know, living in some place like Venezuela or Nigeria or Turkey or Iran where the currency is failing and they have no prospects for, for saving their wealth. They can go on the internet and work for an American company and earn Bitcoin instantly over the internet. They could memorize their password, they could leave the country. But that difficulty of control doesn't just apply to the regimes found in Russia, China, Venezuela, or others. Existing American structures would also be hard-pressed to control or to regulate the nature of blockchain technologies. There are ways to regulate how people interact with the network by addressing the access points. Popular applications where users buy and sell blockchain assets are one example. But controlling the network itself would be virtually impossible. This has led to some concern that blockchain technologies will facilitate crime. Blockchain can be used to move money around in a way that's difficult to prevent because the system that it makes possible isn't tied to any one person, company, or country. So you would hear that they were, you know, people on the dark web would use blockchain to purchase drugs, um, to purchase all sorts of illegal uh, supplies uh, or illegal products. So there is some sort of impression that the criminals like it, that it must be bad then. But I will point out that as we're understanding more and more of it, that's becoming less and less a factor. Law enforcement is starting to get a better understanding of blockchain technologies. That's helping them trace illicit transactions made over the blockchain. You can track and trace the transactions. Again, remember it's a public blockchain. The idea is that all these computers that are participating in the process know and can validate all of the transactions. Well, within the coding is person one transferred three Bitcoin to person two. All you have to do is find out who person one and who person two is. You can find that out. So it is possible and more possible than cash. Jonathan says that when bad actors try to move their digital assets off the blockchain, they normally have to use a real identity to move that value into a bank account, transfer the amount into US dollars, or convert it to some other form of currency. Most of these people want to, I don't want to say cash out, but they want to convert their digital asset to a hard app, to a another, we'll call it a hard asset, but money that they can spend wherever they are. And whenever that happens, that has to be kind of tied to something that's identifiable. A few recent examples have demonstrated that law enforcement can trace fraudulent activities involving blockchain cryptocurrencies. Uh, there are a couple fraudsters 
that the FBI caught and they were able to recover, I believe it was over two or three billion, I think it was two-ish billion, like 2.3 billion in Bitcoin. We are seeing from ransomware with the Colonial Pipeline, the FBI was able to recover several million dollars. Jan Pritzker believes that blockchain's ability to record value in a decentralized way represents a drastic departure from existing ways to keep track of wealth. He also believes it's the future. Like the printing press or the advent of online communication, he believes that blockchain will create new ways for people to interact. I think like if you look at dramatic changes in civilization and, and the progress of civilization, it's always been around new ways to collaborate. Um, you know, the internet, the printing press, uh, even the wheel, like being able to get around and meet other people and then exchange ideas has been how society has flourished. New things can be scary. Um, the internet was scary to many people, right? If you're a blockbuster or Barnes & Noble, you don't really want to see Amazon coming around the corner. You don't really want to see Netflix. We had a lot of people afraid when the internet came out. Isn't it going to en enable more crime? Isn't it going to enable more efficient connect, uh, communication by terrorists? Isn't it going to enable ch child pornography? What is it even good for? Who's ever going to buy stuff on the internet? It's never going to work, right? All of these same criticisms are being levied against Bitcoin. Uh, I know where I stand. That's why you know I, I work in the Bitcoin space is because I believe that we're writing history here. We're creating uh, a huge leap forward for society, and um, I think that's where legislators should be. You know, I think they should look at this similar to the internet. It's a, it's a huge innovation, and if we don't let it flourish, then it'll just go to another country. I mean, China did this, right? They shut down their Bitcoin mining. All the miners left and went to Texas, and they went to Kazakhstan. So now those countries and states are going to benefit, not the Chinese. He believes that this gives the United States a window of opportunity to become a leader in the world of blockchain. People are leaving places like Russia, China. They're coming to the United States, and now they have portable wealth. And you have to be able to think on a system scale to understand this, how the system will evolve. What is the next step? Is it going to grow? Is it going to shrink? Can I do anything to shrink it? No. Is it going to grow? Yes. Where does that put us? Does that create leadership position? That's what we want to do, right? We want to be a leader when there is no choice. It's better to be a leader than it is to be a follower or to be last to the party, which is likely where the U.S. is going to find itself if, if they don't look at this seriously. Jan's book, Inventing Bitcoin, takes a closer look at the subject of blockchain, but also explores how blockchain was originally created. For those looking to better understand the mechanics of what goes on behind blockchain technologies, this 85-page book provides a clear and concise look behind the curtain. Uh, my book actually started out as an exploration of the technology behind Bitcoin, which is the blockchain. And um, as I was writing the book, I realized that in order to explain that, I had to not only explain the, how the technology works, which I do in the book, I cover how the actual blockchain works, how mining works, how Bitcoin comes to be, how it, ex how it, comes, how it comes to exist, how it is moved in the system, how it transacts. Um, but I also had to cover the why, why Bitcoin was built. What problems was it solving? Thank you for listening to this episode of Across the States. We hope you'll continue joining us as we cover topics and ideas impacting limited government, free markets, and federalism in states from New York to California. 
On behalf of the entire team here, I'm Leo Braseno. Thank you, and we hope to see you next time.